it's it's very much as you go through the different stages of your of your life or your business growth it's definitely you come up with these new limiting beliefs new challenges new opportunities and when i when i think about all the different stages that i've grown through in my business the biggest one was money you know it's well what happens when you're you know i remember generating two or three thousand pound a month in the early days of my business and being like whoa this feels like a lot of money because that the, the mindset shift from employed to self-employed is very difficult there's definitely a mindset shift of being employed and having a salary paid into your account every month versus oh actually now i've got to create all this money welcome to that's what she said the podcast for empowering women. My name is Lucienne Shakir and as a female empowerment specialist, I'm a woman who knows what it's like to lose their mind through a lacking of female sense of self and identity. My aim is to share stories from women around the world to help you see that you are not on your own. If you feel that you are lost in a sea of who am I, these collections of conversations are for you. Sit back and enjoy listening to this phenomenal collective of female voices in That's What She Said. In today's episode, we were joined by the beautiful Catherine Morgan, one of my first coaches, and she shared a wealth of knowledge and expertise around wealth. I didn't do that on purpose. I promise I genuinely didn't do that on purpose. She has an incredible podcast called In Her Financial Shoes, and she calls herself a financial therapeutic coach for women. I have thoroughly enjoyed learning and unpicking my behaviors around money with Catherine, and I'm sure that you will enjoy listening to her stories too. There is a conversation around when one of her sons was very poorly. Um, So if you are affected by situations where we talk about illness in young children, please do take caution because that is something that we talk about very openly in this episode. It was a complete pleasure to have her on and I cannot wait for you to listen to this episode of That's What She Said. Today we welcome the incredible Catherine Morgan, who was one of my first coaches on my coaching journey um, a few years ago. She met me in a in a rather interesting time of my life, <laughs> and we're here to hear we're here to hear about her life, not my life. And so I'm going to be asking the questions this time, Catherine. It's going to be the other way around. First of all, how are you? Are you well? Oh, I'm great. It's so lovely to see you. I was just saying to Lucy as we joined us like I'm so used to seeing her in her cupboards when she was working at a school and oh just your journey over the last you know two probably two two and a half years has been just incredible to watch and observe um so I'm extremely delighted to be here with you today thank you for inviting me Thank you. Yeah, the backdrop's a bit different, isn't it? I used to squirrel myself away, hide myself away um, so that I wouldn't be disturbed. It's it's brilliant to have you, Catherine. And you, your journey has been phenomenal as well. Um, you are your own business owner. How would you describe, so that I don't, you know, mess it up, how would you describe for everybody listening what it is that you do? Yeah, so... 
So we, I founded um, my business five years ago. And the reason I founded it was because I, I was, funnily enough, sitting at work myself uh, around 10 years ago. And I was sitting at my desk at work. I was working at the bank at the time. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I wonder how many people feel like how I felt at the time about money. How many people feel an incredible amount of judgment, fear, shame, guilt, all of these emotions that came up around money, just that word money, just me saying that will trigger an emotional response because that's the way that our brains work. And so the business that we've established was really to help to create change, but create change for women to get rid of all the emotions that were holding them back from, first of all, not feeling ashamed to even make money. Like I call this the, like the deserving phase. A lot of people talk about, you know, charge your worth, for example. Well, if your worth isn't very good, then you're never going to charge what you deserve to charge. Um, and so I wanted women to feel comfortable to be able to charge their worth, charge what they needed to charge in order to have the work, you know, the life that they want to live, but also then hold on to that wealth and then also be able to give wealth back to themselves and to others and for the planet, for the world. And through that kind of journey, we've built a business essentially which helps women at different points in their journey to just be comfortable with those three things. Because really money is a reflection on how we feel about ourselves, how we treat money or, or not <laughs> is often a reflection of how we treat ourselves. And through my own story and my own experience, my own personal growth, I've really just understood that it's not about the money. Like it's never about the money. It's always about the meaning that we attach to money. And a lot of people say that money is a taboo subject, right? That we'd rather talk about sex than talk about money. But actually, it's not money that's the taboo. It's the meaning that we attach to it that creates that awkwardness, that creates the loss of boundaries, that creates the frustrations, the challenges in our relationships with our friendships, in our, um, in our partner relationships around a conversation about money. And so... Whenever someone asks me, like, what do we do? We help women to reduce and remove their financial anxieties, to release the negative emotions that they're holding on to that are stopping them from bringing in money, holding on to it and giving it. Mm. And I remember when I when I first started on my journey of exploring my thinking around money, um, it was clear to me from the very first session um, that there was going to need to be a shift in my mentality because I had this notion that money or an abundance of money was was greedy and that um, and that holding on to that money was greedy as well. And so we reframed that for me and thank goodness we did because I don't think we'd be where we are today or where I am today. And I wonder where that comes from. You talk about judgment, fear, shame and guilt. And, and we have that in our vocabulary a lot, especially as women, um, often shamed for spending. Um, it's kind of a wink, wink nudge, nudge, she's gone to the shops and bought some stuff again. Um, what do you see being one of the biggest problems for women around the subject of wealth? Yeah, there's two things there. One is that like, what are the challenges for us as women growing wealth? And the second thing is, well, what influences that ability? What influences those challenges? 
you know, if we think about us as women, as leaders, as as mothers, as sisters, as you know, whatever role capacity we we represent. If you think about our DNA, you know, if you take British culture, for example, culture and society and consumerism is one of the biggest influences on our relationship with money, right? And if you think about women in that role and you look at how society treats us or shoulds on us, right? Society shoulds on us. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. We should be taking care of other people because we're women. We're the caregivers, but if you look back to our DNA, you know, you've got men were perceived to be the hunter gatherers and women were perceived to be the givers. And what's happened is as our society, as our culture has grown, as the world has grown, our role and our place in society and in the world has changed. But yet the beliefs that we have grown up with have come from our DNA. It's come from our culture, our society, all the, if you think of the imprints that that's left in our unconscious minds. And and the reason I say that is because 90% of the decisions that we make every single day come from our unconscious beliefs, things that we're not even present to, we're not even mindful of sometimes. It's not really until you do any deep inner work around your unconscious patterns of behaviors that you actually identify that most of the beliefs that we carry about money and wealth are inherited. They don't even belong to us. And, And one of the things I love talking about I'd love for you to think about just listening to this today is if you imagine that all the beliefs that you've ever carried about yourself and the world around you are inside a bag or a sack, you know, a little bit like Father Christmas, you're kind of walking down the street and you've got this big bag over your shoulder of beliefs that you've just kind of, as you've been walking along the path of life, you've just been picking up and collecting along the way. Now, what's interesting is that the way that the brain works, if, you th- if we talk about neuroscience for a second, the way that the brain works is that it collects all that data, that information, and it puts it into this like filing system and it categorizes it. And the brain's main purpose is to keep us safe. It's the fight or flight response. So the brain's main purpose is to keep us safe. So what happens is when we're faced with a situation about wealth creation or money or a conversation at work about our salary or you know anything that involves money, your brain goes, right, hold on, let me just think back to a situation and let me think to a belief that has been passed on to me, often from parents or generations or main caregivers growing up. And let me just find a piece of information that's going to make me feel really safe and comfortable to have this conversation. Because what the brain wants to do is avoid all the pain and make you feel safe. But actually, if we think about that for a moment, what are those core beliefs that we're all carrying about money? What did your parents tell you or not tell you? What did you observe growing up about money in your household, in your society, in your culture, in your religion, in your friendship groups, in the magazines that you read, the films that you watch? I mean, I, I was watching um, Mary Poppins the other day with my two boys. My favourite Mary- film. <laughs> film oh, it's just magic, isn't it? It's so magical. But that film I watched on repeat over and over, along with Annie and like some just real classic films. And when I was sitting there the other day watching Mary Poppins, I was thinking, what did that teach me about money? You know, what did it teach, you know, with the story of Mr. Banks and he goes to the bank and his little boy Michael's got the tuppence in his hand and, you know, he's given this money and then he wants to put it in the bank, but he's told he has to go and put it somewhere else. 
Um, and there's so many lessons in just a, a single film that we watch as children because we learn through stories. That's how we uh, we set our beliefs in the world is, is, is through stories. And so just to take a moment to think about as a woman creating wealth and even that word may trigger something like, well, I'm certainly not deserving to create wealth or actually wealth is only for the rich or, well, if you're, if you're creating wealth, you're greedy. Well, if I have wealth, it means somebody else can't. There are all these beliefs that come up. We have to work hard to make money. Well, these beliefs that we've carried can often serve us really well, but they can also go to sabotage us as well. So in answer to your question, the influences that surround us in that imprinting period, so between the age of kind of when we're born and actually there's evidence to show it goes right back further, even from when you were in your mother's womb, all the things that she was um, around at the time, the stresses of when she was carrying you have come through the DNA. Um, so n- let alone the beliefs that your mother carried and from her generations, all these patterns of behaviors are just passed through the generations. And this is the magic, right? Because the minute that we decide to change our relationship with money, we're not just changing our relationship with money. We're changing every single future generation ahead of us. And that is so powerful. Mm, I love that. I love that, Catherine. Gosh, it's been far too long since we've spoken. I need a dose of Catherine Morgan. Absolutely brilliant. Um, Inherited beliefs. So if I ask you about that, then how would you describe your money journey? How would you describe you, you talked about wealth? What's your what's your summary of your journey on on wealth? Wow, that's a, such a such a, a big question, which I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll share. I'll share one element of my story, which I think will really resonate with a lot of people listening, because my my background is financial advice. I was a financial advisor for 20 years, and I now actually um, help to uh, train financial advisors now to integrate financial coaching into their businesses, which all centers around the behaviors, the beliefs that we carry around money. But when I was a financial advisor, I lived in debt. I lived on credit card after credit card. I lived in my overdraft every month. And I had a huge amount of shame and guilt that I carried every single day. Now, you can imagine as a financial advisor, knowing the knowledge as to how to build wealth and how to invest and all the things that people struggle with, I knew all of that. And I still wasn't taking the right action. I was still stuck in a cycle of repeated guilt and shame. And the reason that that was so prevalent for me was that if I look back at the patterns of the reoccurring patterns of behavior is I would receive money. And I would receive that money and I'd want to get rid of it as quickly as possible because I didn't feel deserving. I didn't feel like I was good enough to hold on to that wealth. And what happened for me is I'd receive that money. So I would get paid at work and I would spend it within like two or three days. I'd walk along the high street and go into town on my lunch break and I would just spend on clothes. Clothes was my thing. And I had that temporary dopamine hit of, right, I'm going to overspend because, you know, I had the money, but then it went straight out again. And then I'd go into my overdraft. And I believed my core belief was, well, I don't deserve to have this money. So I'm going to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And I'm going to use it to buy clothes in the hope it will make me feel better about myself. 
Now, I lived through years of eating disorders in my teenage years. I was badly bullied at school through all my ages, actually. I was really unfortunate at school. I was bullied at primary school and secondary school. And that was because I was a hard worker. I did really well. And the perfectionist part of me came out to play, right? Because it kept me safe. I felt like if I can be perfect, more people will love me. And I went into this coping mechanism of wanting to feel loved. And so my behaviors were all aligned to how can I not feel that pain, that shame. Um, and that was the why I ended up in a debt cycle. People, you know, people sometimes don't understand, well, how if you're in debt, you just need to pay it off and you know, then you'll be fine. But it doesn't work like that because we get stuck in these reoccurring cycles of behaviors. And it is like a, it's like a drug, you know, it's like a, this, the dopamine hit that your brain receives, that chemical balance is the same with drug abuse, alcohol abuse, eating disorders, um, gambling, you know, it's a psychological um, trauma. And really, I was in a huge state of post-traumatic stress disorder through all of my teenage years because of past traumas that I'd experienced. And there was one particular moment in my life that just changed everything. In fact, there was two, but I'll share, <laughs> I'll share one with you. And it was when we actually moved out to the Channel Islands back in 2008. And we got married over there. I had my first son over there. And we moved back to the UK about four years later. And I really struggled with um, postnatal depression after my first son was born. He was, I was knocked out during my labor. I wasn't even awake. And I, I was... I felt awful about that. I felt awful that I wasn't awake. I felt awful I couldn't control how my body just didn't do what it should do or how I felt it should do. And I didn't really get any help or support after that experience. So when I was pregnant with my second son, I was determined that I was going to have a natural delivery. And, and actually, um, to cut a very long story short, I did have a very successful second labor with him and he was born um, without a C-section, I was awake. It was just wonderful. And from the minute he was born, everything just went completely down. It, it sort of spiraled down. And there was one particular day, it was the 1st of October, 2013, and he was just five weeks old. And we almost lost him when he was three days old. He had a really serious infection that he carried through labor and we almost lost him. And when he was five weeks old, on the 1st of October, that particular morning, my friend was coming over to do some baby hand casting sessions. And we woke up that morning, got George off, my eldest son off to nursery. And my friend came over. And that particular morning, Thomas just wasn't himself. Like he wasn't feeding. He wasn't really sleeping. Every time I picked him up, he would just scream at me. And he was making this kind of odd noise, like almost like a grunting noise um, when he was sleeping. And I kind of, I remember saying to my husband, I wonder whether he's just not feeling, you know, just a bit under the weather today. Anyway, he went off to work. My friend arrived and it was my turn to get Thomas out of the Moses basket to have his, his back, him, baby hand casting done. And as I walked over to the Moses basket in the bay window, I picked him up out of the Moses basket and he screamed at me. And I quickly undid the baby grow from his hands and from his feet. And his hands were like ice. And I remember thinking, God, he's, why are his hands so cold? So I quickly put his hand in this clay and I quickly wrapped him back up again. 
put him back in the Moses basket. And I turned to my friend and I said, would you mind leaving early? Because I just want to get him down to the doctor's. And I thought I was being like just an oversensitive mum, having nearly lost him when he was born. So I booked a doctor's appointment for that afternoon. And my friend left and I walked back over to the Moses basket where Thomas was laying and he was just laying completely still, his eyes wide open. And he was blinking at me like every blink was hard and painful. You know, like when you have a migraine. And I picked up my phone, I messaged my friend who's a nurse and I said, like, what shall I do? Am I just being overprotective? And she said, have you checked his temperature? And I said, well, no, because he's got cold hands and cold feet. So I was wrapping him up. So I took his temperature and his temperature was like 39.9, which for anyone who doesn't have children, anything over 38, either the cow pole comes out or something has to happen. And with that, I put him in the car seat. I jumped in the car. I rang my husband. I said, I'm going straight down to A&E. And within 20 minutes of arriving in A&E, the doctors put me on a wheelchair. And I'll never forget the moment when Thomas was in my arms. I was on this wheelchair and they just wheeled me into resuscitation. And I just remember thinking, crikey, this is quite serious. (laughs) I still get quite quite emotional when I'm telling the story. Sometimes I'm absolutely fine and sometimes I'm not. Um, and I just remember sitting there, everything, I'm very optimistic. So I remember thinking, right, what do I need to do? I'm going to go into solution mode. Like, what do I need to do to help make this situation better? And this one particular doctor kept using this one word with me that I'll never forget. And he kept saying sepsis. And I remember thinking, I think I know what sepsis is, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Later, frantically Googling what the hell is sepsis. And What happened for me during that period is he was then diagnosed with bacterial meningitis, which is the worst form of meningitis that you can have. But because we got him into hospital so quickly, he was treated two weeks of antibiotics in hospital. He's now a very, very happy, almost eight-year-old boy. But what happened for me was I didn't know as a second mum what the signs of sepsis were. I didn't know that cold hands, cold feet, Um, grunting in their sleep, high temperature, all of those things together were big signs of septicemia. And everybody kept saying to me afterwards, oh, isn't it like so wonderful that you got him into hospital because otherwise he would not be here today. But actually that put a huge pressure on me that I felt I should know what the symptoms were. And a year later, I remember sitting in the bank. This is the story I started to tell at the beginning. I sat in the bank and felt a huge amount of shame and guilt that I didn't understand the jargon that the hospital were using. It's like sepsis. I remember thinking, well, what does sepsis mean? What, what, what does that mean? And I remember sitting in the back thinking, how many people feel like this about money? How many people don't understand the symptoms of psychological disorders around money? How many people don't understand the word investing? How many people don't understand pensions? How many people don't understand the importance of their relationship with money? And that was the light bulb moment for me. I just, I felt for me, when I couldn't control something in my life, I used money as a tool to make me feel better about myself. And that was the light bulb moment for me. I I then thought, right, how can I change this reoccurring pattern? How can I go back to the core of actually what really mattered? What were the beliefs that I was carrying? How could I change that unconsciously? so that I could create a better future for myself. And it took me two years to pay down 30,000 pounds worth of debt. 
And I'm now running a multi six figure business and I teach women how to deserve more money, hold on to it and give it comfortably so that they can live the life that they want to live. And for me, when I think about that story, and I'm sure there's elements of that that you can all relate to listening to this, we have to, as women, think about our own needs as well as other people's. And we have to remember that if we're holding on to guilt or shame, and not just our own guilt and shame, but other people's guilt and shame, then that may not serve us to enable us to kind of unlock that awareness and spaciousness for ourselves to be able to generate wealth. A fascinating um, story, quite an emotional one as well, Catherine. So thank you so much for sharing for sharing that with us. Um, gosh, I'm a bit blown away by it, to be honest, but I, I think it's, it's phenomenal. And we need to hear this. The guilt and shame is such an important thing to evaluate and to get out of our system to really expose um, in ourselves. And we talk about that a lot on the podcast, guilt and shame and fear of judgment and the veneer of perfection and what we can control. Um, So your boys are happy and healthy and, you know, that's just wonderful. And I remember listening to a podcast of yours. You have a brilliant podcast which I recommend to absolutely everybody in her financial shoes it's absolutely marvelous one of my favorite episodes is when you were talking about your son's education around money and how you sit around the table with the boys and I'd just love for you to describe that you know that culture of money mindset in your home so that people listening who've got kids can perhaps take something away to do with their children as well Yeah, great question. Um, So, yeah, so my boys are 10 and 7 now. Um, And right away from when they were very little, we've always thought about how can we teach them really good financial habits. And children often learn through what they see and what they hear. And it's both of those things. So they'll learn through what you do with money and the conversations that you have at home around money, but they'll also um, learn through, you know, what they, what they see and what they observe. So, you know, game, using games with children around money is a really great way of introducing them to the conversation around money. So right the way from when they were very, very little, we used to play shops. It was one of our favorite games, actually. We'd love to do role play. And children learn through stories. So we'd often kind of pretend that, you know, mum would come along with her purse and, her pocket money and you know she would she would decide what does she need versus what does she want so right away from a very early age we talked to the boys about the differences between needs and wants and um when I say that some of you may be like oh my god like I've never heard this concept before like it's a really obvious one but something that we just don't talk about so there's a big difference between what we need for our psychological our emotional needs and our financial needs but also what we what we want. So when you take children into a supermarket, you know, they always say like, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. The, the obvious reaction is to say, oh, we can't afford to get all these things. Like how many times do we hear ourselves saying that, right? Like, oh, we can't afford that. Um, then I always think about what message does that give children? If we can't afford something, that means there's not enough of something. It's this not enoughness mindset or a scarcity mindset. And really what we want to teach children is it's about prioritization. It's about what do we want and what do we need? So as the children have grown up, we've had that kind of conversation where 
we in the early days used to practice it through role play. But actually, as they've grown up, we now have a, a magic chart on our wall in our lounge. A magic chart, by the way, if you've never heard of magic charts, oh my God, they're life-saving. Um, they're like rolls of clean film. They, they're like whiteboards on a roll and you sort of tear them down and then you can just stick them on the wall. But they don't, you, know, you can just tear them down. They don't leave any marks on your wall. And we have a needs and a wants list as a family. So when something comes up, like we want to go on this to, to this uh, country or this holiday, or we want a hot tub in the garden or whatever it is that's on our list, we always talk about, okay, so is it a want or is it a need? So a want is something that we, you know, we just desire. And I think it's important to talk to children about their desires. What is it that they desire? And then what do they need? You know, like they need school shoes. They need underwear. They need, we need electricity. You know, we need food. But there is a big difference between needs and wants. So have that conversation with your children. And then what we do with our boys is we talk, we have kind of pots. We talk about pots a lot. So um, one of my big golden rules is giving every pound a purpose. So every single pound that comes into your account, if you imagine you're giving it a job. So if you're running your own business or you're in a workplace, imagine it's a member of staff coming into up to your desk on a Monday morning and saying, right, what job do you have for me today? And you're going to go and give that pounds, that person, a job. Um, and the great thing about this is that you get to decide, right? None of this shoulding, none of this, the society tells us we should be investing 15% of your salary when you're 18 years old to, into a pension. You know, none of this shoulding. What is right for you in your current situation? Don't compare yourself to anybody else. What is right for you in your current situation? And give that pound a purpose, and set up your pots. So I'm a big lover of Starling and Monzo, you know, companies where you can set up these different pots virtually inside your bank account app and you can put pictures behind it. You can give it a special name. Uh, so in my Starling pots, for example, I have a, uh, my current pot actually is an eat, pray, love retreat pot. You know, this is my treat for myself that when I reach a certain level in my business, I'm going to go and take myself off for a week. We've got a teeth pot, a hairdresser pot, a Christmas pot, a holiday pot, you know, all these different things. So we teach our children exactly the same. You know, we want a, a saving pot, a giving pot, an investing pot and a spending pot so that we can teach children that it's important to have a balance of all of those things. Because most of us have a bias in one of those areas. You'll either be listening to this and thinking, oh, well, I can't possibly set up a pot for myself. I can't spend money on myself because that just fills me with guilt and shame. And that's very prevalent for a lot of mums in particular. Okay to spend on everybody else, but not on ourselves. So create yourself a giving pot for yourself, a treat pot, and give yourself permission to put, even if it's £50 a month or £25 a month or £100 a month, but give yourself permission to be able to spend that guilt-free, shame-free for your needs before you give to anybody else and it's yeah, that whole, that was oh, sorry I, I just I've just remembered something that you said to me when we were coaching and it was transformative I mean I was quite I was quite um uh, I don't even know what the word is goodness me I was quite purposeful about when I hired you in because I knew that I wasn't going to be getting a paycheck after a certain amount of time and that I needed to have some kind of reserve so that I could pay myself and you said to me pay yourself first 
that's what you do. You pay yourself first. And I suppose this is this is part of that, isn't it? You the whole thing about putting on your air mask before you attend to your children. Um, because the guilt around we we also spoke a lot about my hair extensions. And my hair extensions would cost, you know, good good 600 quid every time I had them done. And I used to feel so much guilt about it, but they made me feel so good. And you just reframed it for me. We set up those pots in Starling and I I put money aside for it. And then spending the money wasn't really an issue because it was kind of already allocated. So giving each pound a purpose, giving every pound a job, just phenomenal advice. I love it. I just had that flashback. Yeah, I remember too now. Now you've shared it, actually. I'd I'd forgotten myself about that. Like it's, and, and the thing is, right, is that giving every pound a purpose, but in alignment with your values. And what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, one of your highest values is knowledge and contribution. Then if you're spending £100 a month on books, that's okay. Like, that's okay. The reason we feel uncomfortable about that is because we compare ourselves to everybody else. So think about your financial values. Think about your own values in life and how can you align your financial spending and your saving habits to your values? So what I mean by that is, you know, if you think about what we spend is what we value, It's so true, isn't it? I bet if you were to grab a highlighter pen after listening to this podcast episode and go through your bank statements and get like a different color highlighter pen for each value that represents what's important to you, you could go through your bank statement and identify fairly quickly what you value. And so it's a really great way of reframing that whole scary exercise of actually looking at our bank statements because let's face it, most of us don't like doing that. (laughs) You know, but if we were to come at that from a completely different perspective and, and come, at it, come at it from an empowered, what information can I gather about myself and my values by looking at my bank statement? That feels like much more of an empowering, motivating activity to do than what most people do is they ask themselves that question about, well, I have no idea what I'm spending. And then you read an article that says you just need to set up a budget. And it's like, who wants to budget their money? Who wants to restrict their money? (laughs) We want to create a spending plan in alignment with your values to give every pound a purpose in alignment with what matters to you, not taking stuff away, not restricting money. You work hard for it, right? This is about you giving yourself that purpose for what matters for you. Mm. Yes, absolutely right. Everybody needs to hear this. Uh, And speaking of which, so obviously the the name of the podcast is That's What She Said, a slightly tongue-in-cheek kind of ode to listening to women and being a little shocked by, you know, what we say and turning it on its head a little bit. What do you wish you'd heard when you were younger that would have helped you step into perhaps where you are today a little sooner? What would have been some good advice for you that you could put out there to other women listening or young girls listening? Three words I wish I'd had heard. I am enough. I can honestly say if I had heard that growing up, And when I say heard that growing up, like we have the ability now as adults to be able to give that to ourselves. You know, when when those parts of us that come up, the perfectionist, 
the inner critic, the uh, the person who wants to control everything, um, the saboteur, you know, all the different parts of us that come out. We are in a position now to, to tell our six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old version of what we needed to hear. And that for me... Knowing now that I have that ability to tell myself or tell the the inner child, if you like, the, the younger version of myself, what I needed to hear has just changed everything. Because if we feel better about ourselves, every, everything matters. It opens up opportunities. It, it helps us to make progress. It helps us to do things that feel super scary. Knowing that and trusting that Whatever we do is right. There's no perfect solution. There's no what perfect looks like. There are days where we feel great and there's days where we don't feel great. And I think the more comfortable we feel to live our day-by-day life, knowing that it's okay to go with the ebbs and flows, you know, that like even in business, right, we talk about things like, you know, cash flow, you know, having consistent cash flow or, you know, not having all these ebbs and flows all the time. Well, what's wrong with having ebbs and flows? What's wrong with just waking up one day and saying, do you know what? I just need to replenish today. I just need to have a conversation with my best friend today. I just need to take the day off. I just need to go for a long walk. I just need to stop. I just need to tell myself that I am enough. And I think the more comfortable we can feel about not relying so much or not looking for other people to tell us that, we can tell that to ourselves we have that ability that that intuition really to just trust what feels right um but we just spend so much of our time don't we looking at everybody else's life scrolling social media on the couch on a monday evening and then making decisions on our own life based on other people's which let's face it we never know what's going on in other people's lives anyway no we don't <laughs> i recommend i recommend to a lot of my clients a brilliant course by professor Laurie santos which talks about how you know as much as maybe 40 to 50 years ago our only reference point was you know the the neighbor's car on the drive and that was the comparison point or the suit that somebody was wearing to work. Now you have comparison ability absolutely everywhere you look. It's in your own home. It's in your hand. It's in front of your eyes. And so that's a a brilliant course, which is free and which talks about the science of well-being, the science of happiness. And uh, I think it's a I think it's a really important thing to point out around comparison and, and just how do we get to that place where we feel that we are enough? So what do you do, Catherine, to when you're noticing these ebbs and flows, what what are you doing to remind yourself that you are enough? So I work with a number of people over the years to just really, I think the support network that you have around you is so important um, because it can be quite an isolating place. I mean, I work from home, uh, I have done for the last five years. And if I didn't have that support network around me, I would feel very isolated. So the first thing I do is to make sure I have that that network of people around me that support me in every area of my life, not just in business, but in health, in my relationships, and one of the one of the lessons I learned actually a few years ago when I went on a retreat is about 
And actually the, the retreat I went on was called Be Love. It was about loving yourself first. And what I learned on that retreat, which was run by an organization called One of Many. And what I learned on that retreat was that actually we put a lot of pressure on other people to give us that feeling of feeling loved. And especially on our partners, you know, if you're in a relationship, we put a lot of pressure on our partners to be the go-to person for everything. And what I really learned was I needed to have go-to people to support me in all areas of my life. So kind of consciously designing a network of people around me that could support me. So that, that, that would be one of the things I would, uh, that really sort of served me and I would really recommend for people. The other things that I do is I practice a lot of, I, I do a lot of journaling. And when somebody said to me four or five years ago about journaling, I was like, what? Like I used to write diaries when I was like nine years old. It's like, is it the same thing? And I actually had a big resistance to writing anything because of my experience of when I used to write in my diaries. And I read a book um, and I'm just trying to think of the name of the book because my brain's gone completely uh, to part on me. It's called... What's it called? What's it called? Oh, it'll come to me in a second. But there's a really great book I would recommend. And this particular book takes you through the stages to actually journal. And it's all about getting what's out of your unconscious mind onto paper. Um, the Artist Way, Julia Cameron. There we go. The Artist Way are. by Julia there Cameron. There we are. She's still got it. <laughs> <laughs> And I recommend it to all the, any client I'm working with, it's one of the go-to books I recommend that they read before we start working together. And that really supports me. Um, I don't do it every day. Um, I should do it every day, but I'll be honest, I, I, I don't do it every day. Um, but at least three or four times a week, I will take even just 15, 20 minutes to spend some time actually writing down what's coming up for me. And the best time of the day to do this is straight away in the morning when you first wake up and you're in that kind of daze of you're not quite awake. Um, is you just grab your journal and a pen and you just consciously write for three or four pages without stopping um, and just see what comes out of your unconscious mind and start to challenge yourself. You know, things that you're observing or writing down, look at the language you're writing down, question whether it's true or not. Um, that, that whole process has been hugely transformational for me. Um, and then at the end of the day, you know, spending some time to express some gratitude for what's gone well for you that day, what, what's come up for you as challenges, and then what your focus is for the day going forward. So you're kind of getting rid of all the stresses of the day, um, but then actually looking forward. So it's more of an optimistic exercise to look forward to, right, what, what can I learn from myself about today? And how do I use that to support me in the following day? Brilliant, brilliant advice. Um, something that's very important is exposing your thoughts is what we talk about. So exposing your thinking. I like the idea of waking up and doing it in that phase as you're waking. I think that's a really good idea. I might give that a go, Catherine. I might just give that a go. Um, so you have grown a business from that day when you were asking yourself the question in the bank uh, to where you are today. There must have been times where you kind of reached a certain point and you needed to go through growth again. And then you reached another point and you needed to go through growth again. I know that this is something that I'm experiencing. And that growth phase can be really quite 
difficult actually because you know you got you got those growing pains there's lots of new stuff around you so I wondered if you could describe for the fellow business owners out there and this isn't this isn't an entrepreneurial podcast this is for women of all shapes and sizes everywhere in the world however for those who are running their own businesses um what would you identify as some of the key pinch points as you were growing your business and how did you get yourself through those just anything that you can think of to advise people running their own business Mm, great question it's new level new devil isn't it it's it's very much as you go through the different stages of your of your life or your business growth it's definitely you come up with these new limiting beliefs new challenges new opportunities and when I, when I think about all the different stages that I've grown through in my business, the biggest one was money. You know, it's well, what happens when you're, you know, I remember generating two or three thousand pounds a month in the early days of my business and being like, whoa, this feels like a lot of money. Because that, the, the mindset shift from employed to self-employed is very difficult. There's definitely a mindset shift of being employed and having a salary paid into your account every month versus oh, actually now I've got to create all this money. And I mean, I was very fortunate in I knew how to manage money. But for a lot of um, women that I work with, they don't know how to set up business accounts. They don't know how to pay their taxes. Most of them don't pay taxes or don't even think about taxes for the first year. And then they get the first pain point of, oh my God, I've got a tax bill to pay. And they didn't realize that that was going to happen because financial education is so poor, right? So unless someone's actually sat down and told you this then that can be problematic for a lot of uh, women, particularly going into business. Um, But for me, certainly, I remember even as as a finance expert, as I was increasing my income, you know, 5,000 a month, 10,000 a month, 20,000 pound a month, all these limiting beliefs kept showing up. And I was like, but I thought I dealt with this one like last year and it's coming up again. Um, So the, the work that I've done around kind of parts therapy and the different parts that come out during these periods of up-leveling have been really pivotal in kind of just understanding, well, what does that look like? How is it supporting me? And kind of honoring the growth as each stage has, you know, as you've gone through each stage, because it's never linear. It's never like, like you go through this stage, then you hit a plateau, then you go to the next stage. It's, It's just not like that in business. It's not linear. It's very, it is very up and down. Um, and I forgot what your question was now. <laughs> pushing, pushing through those those next stages, those those points of growth, and you said new level, new devil, you know. And I suppose um, making assumptions around what you've said so far, having that support network around you to ask for help it is, you know, I know for myself, I find that invaluable. Um, you clearly, you must have someone that you go to to ask for for help around business and growing the business. Yeah, I've worked with a, a, quite a few different mentors, actually. And that's been an interesting journey just in itself, because I mean, I would say everybody I've worked with, I've got, you know, I've, I've gained something, even if at the time I thought, hmm, I don't really know what I've, you know, what I've learned there. Um, and I've definitely had some mentors that have been better than others, but it's, it's that whole self-development growth piece. Like I'm a, 
I could just sit down all day and do self-development work. I just think it's so important, whether you're in business or not, personal development, it's much easier for people in business because it's just part of being an entrepreneur. When you're even when you're employed, it's like expanding your personal development and growing that is really going to serve you, even if you're not in business. Um, and when I've worked with different mentors, I've got different things from different mentors, and I've worked with men, I've worked with women, and that's been quite interesting for me is to look at even energetically, like without being too woo woo about this, right? But energetically, I have quite a masculine energy energy about me at times. But I also, I can grow faster and happier when I actually think about more of how I can show up in a feminine energy rather than a masculine energy. And the reason I mention that is because my experience and people who influenced me growing up was predominantly my dad's, who of course has a very masculine energy. He, he was an, is an entrepreneur, was an entrepreneur. And so I grew up with the mentality that, only men can build wealth, only men can be successful in business. And so I felt like if I stepped into that masculine do, 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 do energy, that it would best support me. And actually, when I come out of that masculine mode of do, 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 and this is prevalent in leadership too, right? In, in, if you're employed and you're in a leadership role, we often feel like we have to take on that masculine energy in order to prove something to the world. And when I've done more of the woo-woo work, I guess, you know, more about trusting my intuition, I'm very spiritual, I'm very tapped into my intuition, I'm very good at reading other people's body language. And the more work I do in that side, the more my business grows. And actually, the less I do, the more my business grows. But that played havoc in my mind because I was like, but I have to be working hard to make money. That's what I observed. And, and is what I observe, even in the online space where my business operates, there's a lot of masculine energy. And what I've learned about myself is actually, I don't want to work in that masculine energy environment anymore. It doesn't support me. So when I look for mentors, I look for mentors that can help to challenge my energy, that can help me to challenge my way of thinking. So that rather than it being just do, 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 do all the time, which naturally I am anyway, like I'm a big doer. I'm very spontaneous. I'm very spontaneous with my relationship with money. I'm very spontaneous with my relationship in business. I can take new opportunities on. And so if you're sitting here you know, listening to this thinking, yeah, I'm the same, like I'm very spontaneous, you'll be spontaneous in every aspect of your life. So we should definitely recognize that and you know feel good about that. So think about working with people that can challenge that. Go and work with someone who's very high on planning who's very high on systems and processes, for example, that can help you to challenge you to think about putting that into your business because that's not the thing that naturally you would want to do anyway. You know, kind of counterbalancing that, which can feel quite scary. Um, but th that's been a massive learning curve for me is about choosing the right people in your network, but choosing the right people to work with you and just trusting your intuition with what feels right. What a brilliant way to end this phenomenal episode, Catherine. I'm so grateful to you for being here because, um, yeah, the, when we first met and when I worked with you, it shifted a lot. 
And then there's been a couple of years in between and I've spoken to you and it's like this can has just been opened again. It's like, oh, do you remember? Do you remember that stuff? Um, so you've given so much phenomenal advice today to everybody listening. Um, I know that you have, I spoke about it earlier on, but you have the podcast in her financial shoes, which I recommend to everybody. Everyone needs to listen to it. I love it. I was talking to a friend about it the other day, actually. And um, you have a great quiz on discovering your relationship with money where can we find that we'll put it all in the show notes but just to explain where people can find more about your services yeah thank you yeah so if you've listened to this and you're kind of wondering well what is my relationship with money and what do I do about that what are the kind of the first steps that I can take to think about nurturing that relationship um we just put together like a really super fun quiz um it's on katherinemorgan.com forward slash quiz and it will just take you through a couple of questions and then we'll actually email you with your permission of course to um, just send you a couple of things to get started so we actually give you some journaling questions if you're curious to well what what may be helpful for me to explore with myself to start thinking about some of those patterns of behaviors and where have they come from who do they actually belong to and, and just on that note actually I just really want to make sure that I mention this that if you feel any guilt, shame, judgment, comparisonitis, all of those emotions around money, the best question you can ask yourself is who does this belong to? Whose guilt is this? Whose shame is this? Whose judgment am I carrying? Um, And often if we take some time to think about that, it's not even ours. It doesn't even belong to us. So give it back with kindness and love that actually this isn't serving you anymore and paint that picture, paint that future picture of how would your life look if you handed that back? Thank you so much for being with us today, Catherine. Uh, that has been, um, that's what she said. I've been Lucien. We've had Catherine Morgan with us and it's been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much. Mama said I ain't from around here, that I'm Go and take a look at Catherine's quiz on her website. I am sure that you will learn so much about yourself. I know that it opened a can of thoughts, emotions and feelings from when I was working with her about around my financial money mindset. Um, please do go and take a look. I'm sure you'll agree she was absolutely phenomenal. Thank you to Catherine from the bottom of my heart for joining us on this episode of That's What She Said. Thank you for joining us on another episode of That's What She Said. This is a phenomenal collective of female voices from around the world. And I'm sharing that to empower women to share our stories so that you know that you are not alone. I'm a woman who's gone through it all. Honestly, there is nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard before, either with my clients or through my own life journey. And we need to stop hiding behind a veneer of perfection. These stories are important and we need to share them loudly and proudly. And that's what we're doing on this series of That's What She Said. Thank you for joining us. I have been your host, Lucien Shakir, and it has been an absolute pleasure to spend my time with these phenomenal women.